Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting firm RiderFlex. If you enjoyed today's guest interview, please give it a like and be sure to subscribe to the RiderFlex podcast. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Ian Blair on the RiderFlex podcast. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing great. Pleasure to, to, to be talking to you today. Yeah, man. You, what, how old are you? Like 22? I mean, geez, you look like you, you look super young. <laughs> I got started when I was 20, but I'm 29. So 29. Uh, I, I okay. have, yeah, I almost have a decade of software under my belt at this point. Wow. Okay. What, what do you feel old? If you're a startup, if I'm you're starting to. Yeah. Yeah. I turned 30 in May. So I do, uh, feels like I'm getting up there. <laughs> give us, give me the personal story, family, siblings, mom, dad, where you grew up. Give me some of that. Yeah. So I grew up in the Bay area, you know, in the whole like epicenter of tech and my dad, um, was a successful entrepreneur. So my dad comes from like small town USA and upstate New York. Um, and then, you know, saw what was happening out in Silicon Valley, wanted to be a big part of that. And then he ended up co-founding the company that created the world's first Ethernet switch. And it was Cisco's third acquisition. So like that was kind of his first big hit. And then he did, had another home run after that during the whole dot-com boom. Um, wow. Where, uh, it, you know, the company IPO'd, you know, was worth more than Xerox at one point. Um, is he on a yacht? They did is, he the, on, is, he, is he on a yacht somewhere? You just call him every once in a while? What's he doing? <laughs> yeah, he had... Actually, uh, he lives about 45 minutes away from me in Paradise Valley, Arizona. So recently moved out here actually about a year ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I've had a fun life growing up with my dad. We actually owned an IndyCar team after that. Uh, what? What? Yeah, so IndyCar <laughs> racing. I was young though. I was only like 12 years old when we were doing that, but we did almost win the Indy 500. We finished fourth. Um, so like that, that's a bit of like my background, like growing up as a kid and then like going into college, like, well, I knew I was an entrepreneur you know, from an early age, like I was like 12 years old doing lemonade stands. I was selling golf balls on eBay that I would go find off the golf course. So like, it's always kind of been in my DNA. And then like, right when I was 18, two weeks into college is like, I'm starting a business. I'm going to figure this out. Really? And that's, yeah. So that's when I kind of like developed my passion for, you know, developing websites, you know, internet marketing, SEO, and then like, for me, web development was a means to an end, um, you know, to be able to sell products and so forth. Um, but really like kind of like the magic was marketing. And then let's see, by the time I was like a junior in college, um, you know, iPhone four had just come out, like Siri was the new hot thing and like the app store was new. So I kind of approached my curiosity with apps, like similar with, with websites and, you know, I built my first mobile app when I was in college. It was called the University Exchange. And we tried to replace this, you know, the school bookstore for like buying and selling textbooks. Mm. And like I blast emailed the whole school saying the uh, bookstore was closing down. And the only way they could buy and sell textbooks was with uh, <laughs> the app that I developed. <laughs> so I can, just, I can just hear like the university president. He's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? You can't do that. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. And I actually had to volunteer and, and sort books in the bookstore after. So, I mean, the, uh, the whole school leadership got involved That's, and got called into uh, the dean's office. But That is so good. That's so, oh, that is good. You got to go to the dean's office. They're like, what are, you, yeah. what are you doing? That's pretty funny. How long did you have to volunteer? Uh, a couple of days. It was awful. It was, it was torture. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Okay. What was the name of that? Was that the, yeah. What was the name of that company? That was called, was that yeah. A- that- it was yeah, like just ahead. an app. It was the university exchange. And then, um, okay. then, it, then it really kind of sparked the idea, like developing a mobile app was really hard, but they're like very powerful tools. So like, how could we create these like templated apps and sell them over and over again? Okay. And then, um, yeah, I was like my, towards the end of my first semester of junior year, I'd got connected with another individual. I kind of had a similar vision and we, okay. uh, he knew about these like mobile app development platforms. And what was really neat about these is you could white label them. So we could basically start our own software company, you know, as a white labeled app builder, um, mm-hmm. for, you know, 300, 500 bucks a month or something. Okay. And that's what we started doing. We started selling apps to businesses and, and nonprofits. And, uh, did it take, know. did it take startup cash? Did your dad have to help you with that or did no, you, how, no, how, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I start. yeah, that was cause you know, when you're just, you know, white labeling one of these platforms, I mean, it was, it was pretty cheap. It was like a couple hundred bucks. So we were, we were making money, but then we ultimately got to the point where, it was like, if we're going to be a real business, we have to have our own technology because people wanted, you know, a lot more customization than these platforms could offer. That's when my dad got involved to uh, fund the initial development of the software. Okay. And, you know, throughout that time, uh, we were, you know, continuing to acquire customers, build more apps. And then once we kind of got to like version one of our platform, that's when we ultimately launched BuildFire, where, you know, we are now one of the largest, you know, do-it-yourself app builders in the market. Um, and we also uh, build apps for people. So you can either, there's kind of two paths you can go down. It's like, would you like BuildFire to build your app for you? We build that, you know, using our platform. And it's kind of like a, you think of them as like Lego pieces. Like we have this whole marketplace of like hundreds of features you can choose from to build your app. So, you know, say you were building that for a conference, um, you know, you could grab a list, like all your speakers, your event calendar, maps, um, you know, videos, like all of these are like features and like modules we have available in our platform that you can quickly, you know, choose from to like rapidly prototype and build your app rather than having to build everything from scratch. So like fundamentally we're democratizing app development. I see. So, I see. How and how big is how big is the company? How many employees? Yeah, so we have about seventy people in the business, and we've built well over ten thousand apps on our system. So really, congratulations! Yeah, yeah. And so we have doing, tens of millions of people. You basically been doing that since you got out of college, right? I mean, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it really started off kind of like second semester of my junior year, and then. What was interesting is I had, you know, four months of summer break to, you know, build this. And then I had to go back to school for one last semester. Fortunately, I graduated early. So if I had to do a full year, I would have just dropped out. You would have just like, no way I was going back. (laughs) But, you know, I did finish. 10,000 apps and you've got 70 employees. Where are you based? San Diego? Yeah. So I was based in San Diego uh, for four and a half years. And then, uh, you know, obviously COVID hit and really changed things. None of my employees wanted to go back to the office. And, Mm. you know, also just, uh, you know, I grew up in California my whole life and it has been on a downward trajectory the last decade. And, you know, frankly, I was just over the homelessness and like seeing abject poverty day in and day out. I mean, that's just the truth of it. Like San Diego out out of any of the cities and um, in California is probably one of the nicest, like in terms of like big cities, I'd say Orange County is probably the nicest part of California. Cause I also grew up with a beach house in Laguna beach and 
they don't have quite the same problems there, but you know, in San Diego, you walk out and you got to see, you know, people with missing limbs, you know, walking around like zombies and, mm-hmm. you know, shitting all over the street. Like, I mean, there's just no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. basically what you're subjugated to day in and day out. And um, fortunately my dad had bought a place out in Arizona right before the pandemic hit. And I came out, you know, cause San Diego became like a jail cell rather quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really liked it out here and, and knew that I, you know, ultimately wanted to get out of California and, and you know, made the, the movie a year later. So isn't it sad, isn't it sad, right? And I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but just really quickly, yeah. I have talked to so many entrepreneurs that have left California and it's, what's sad about it is, is it's wonderful weather, right? I mean, it, it was, yeah. a, it was a great place to live, but I mean, if you have a $7 million home in Orange County, and you got people mm-hmm. pitching, pitching tents in the grass out in front yeah. along the street. I mean, no, I mean, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of my buddies has like a $5 million home and he has to worry about getting robbed day in and day out. Like, I just That's don't cool. want that. No. So, no. Yeah. So you get like an instant pay raise by moving out because the taxes are a lot you know, more favorable in other states. And then like, just, you got to look at it like, you know, dollar for dollar, what are you getting like for quality of life? And it like, it goes so much further in a place like Arizona and everything's just nicer just due to the sheer virtue that it's newer. Um, we have a really like robust economy. It's not like based off of tourism or anything like that. Like we have real manufacturing jobs and, um, you know, it's a big metropolis and like we're not landlocked either. We're fundamentally California is like, if you fly over LA at night, like every inch of land that could be developed has been, it's, you know, you have all these mountains that get in the way. So you've basically California probably has like two times as many people that should be in it. And like, that's why the Bay area is, is like so crowded too. It's like, it was never like when they planned the city, they never expected it um, to have that many people. So I don't even like going home anymore. <laughs> did you guys, uh, did your dad sell, sell his property out in California? You still got yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. All out of California. And then I convinced my mom to start building a house in Arizona too. So. <laughs> uh Oh, sounds like your mom and dad got divorced. Yeah. Yeah. They're both happily remarried. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's. Did you, uh, did you have siblings? Yep, I got. I have a younger brother, and uh, he actually lives with me, and he uh, works for me at Buildfire, and then actually uh, co-founded Laundry Sauce with me because we came up. We came up with the idea when we were together on an airplane. <laughs> which one? Which one is he in the photo on the Laundry Sauce uh, website? Is he on the left he, or the right? He's the redheaded one, one with the okay. big beard. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Who's the other guy? Uh, he's, uh, one of my best friends. Uh, you know, I met him actually when I was in college and what's funny is like, so we lived in, so we were roommates in San Diego for a little bit. Then he went off and got married and then, um, he wanted to get out of California as well. And he happened, like, we happened to both independently be looking at the exact same like neighborhood in Arizona. And he lives like less than a mile down the street from me. <laughs> is that so, why you, you, on the website, it says three brothers, but he's yeah. not actually, okay. Yeah. He I, might as well be a brother at this point. So. I see. Does he work at the company too? Uh, so he actually, yeah. So he started off, um, you know, working at, at Buildfire for a while. And then he ended up going off to Cisco app dynamics, um, doing enterprise sales there. Um, and now he's working at another company called data robot, but, um, okay. yeah, he's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're both juggling a lot <laughs> running both uh, like multiple companies. So, uh, sounds um, like it. Let me, let me ask you, uh, really quick before we get too far down into laundry sauce, your mom, um, 
Yeah. Did she have a career as well? Did she just take care of you and your brother? What was her story? What's her story? Yeah. So she, uh, she actually did sales at Kodak and that's actually where my mom and dad met. So my dad was an instructor and and my mom was one of the students for training. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So that's what my dad was. He was working, um, uh, up in Kodak, uh, in Rochester, New York. Um, and my mom was, I think, living in, I think Detroit or something and flew out. And that's where they ended up meeting and then ended up coming out to the West coast to go pursue, you know, Silicon Valley nice. dreams. So my mom was actually the one that, uh, was working while my dad was building, um, this company Calpano where they did the ethernet switch mm-hmm. and, you know, he went all in, you know, took a second mortgage out on the home, just like full send. And, you know, fortunately it all worked out. <laughs> okay. How old were you when they separated? Um, I think I was like 16 or so, but fortunately my dad ended up just living right down the street. So I could walk okay. to his place. Okay. It wasn't that big a deal. So it wasn't like, it wasn't earth crushing for you and your brother then? No. And then, you know, I kind of view it now. Like I got two families, like, you know, I love my stepmom, I love my stepdad. So, okay. um, yeah. Okay. Very good. But you get your entrepreneurial juice from your dad, obviously. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you were like, okay, I see my dad, he was an entrepreneur. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. Got it. Got it. Build fire. Uh, can you talk about the ownership structure? I mean, I know your dad invested, so is it, yeah. so fa- is it family owned? Have you taken on PE money, VC outside investors? Yeah. Like what's the makeup? Yeah. Yeah, I know we do. We do have outside investors as well as like my family has funded it as well. I think we've okay. raised, I think about six, six and a half million so far. Okay. So um, it's, it's a bit, uh, you know, when you look at how much some of the other companies in the space have raised, you know, we're kind of bringing a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the guys have either raised tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, but part you, haven't of, had to. Um, you haven't had to, or yeah. have you tried? Um, no, we, I, we've, we've mainly kind of gone with this approach because what ends up happening is if you raise like a ton of money, you, you know, there's a, it's a balance, right? Cause if you mm-hmm. sell too much of the company early on, you get so diluted. It's not like really worth it. Um, are, you so, and your dad, you know, are you and your dad still in control right now? Is, oh, the, yeah. is the quote family in control of the cap yeah, table? Yeah. The family's in control of the cap table right now. Okay. So well, that, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I mean, Hey, if you can make good money on, on a, I'm guessing you're doing less than a hundred million in volume. I don't know what you're doing. In volume. Yeah. Yeah. If you can, if you can make great money doing less than a hundred million in volume and you still have control of your cap table and you're making a great living. I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah. (laughs) Why why go out and raise a bunch of money? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And, but there's also like the focus on growth versus profitability. And typically like with services businesses, you're looking at more profitability metrics, whereas like software, because you're getting a multiple based off of your revenue. So typically the way you can generate a lot of wealth is like getting liquidity at some point. So with software, it's somewhat build to sell, um, you know, or services businesses, it's like build them to cash flow, And then you take that cash flow and invest them into other, you know, uh, you know, software businesses or, you know, other investment opportunities. Mm, yes. Great advice for the listeners right there. I hope everybody took notes right there uh, from Ian, because that's exactly right. I own a service business because RiderFlex is a recruiting firm. So, yeah, for us, it's all about we, we know we're judged on um, some profitability, right? It can't just be the, the top line, at least for now. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, great advice right there. Let me. Uh, yeah. so, so what's the plan? Are you going to do you want to sell it? Are you going to keep it? Are you going to is it? What are we doing here with, with Bill? Fry? Yeah, the I mean, yeah, there's got to be liquidity at some point for uh, investors. And, uh, you know, we are looking at 
doing a larger round at the moment to both provide liquidity um, as well as uh, you know growth capital as well. So you know when you look at the capitalization of other companies, you know when they're you know 50 million in funding or 100 million in funding, um, you know and like as you know like the the talent market is is incredibly competitive and in yep. software businesses they're really people businesses because you know at the end of the day the product is intangible and it's like what your people create. Um, so, you know, when you see how much uh, some uh, companies are paying for employees at the moment, it just, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> but it no. makes sense when you got $50 million in the bank account that you got to burn through. So <laughs> that's right. That's uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. So you are going to, you are going to have an event at some point, but you're already, you're not burning cash still, right? You're, you're pot, you're, you're making money. Yeah, I mean, we typically take like all of our uh, all okay. of the profits and just reinvest into growth because yeah. you know yeah. it makes a lot more sense to grow faster because it's like your multiple is based off of top line revenue when it comes to SaaS or you know, typically your uh, ARR, your annual recurring revenue, um, and then the higher you get a higher multiple, the faster you're growing. So if you're growing like zero to twenty percent a year versus twenty to forty versus fifty versus like doubling you know, all the multiples are pretty strongly correlated with, uh, with your overall growth rate. You are well-educated on this, Ian. Is this from your dad? Is this from college? Is this from your own study or a combination of all three? I mean, it, it you know, just being around this, like my whole life, like it, you just kind of get ingrained into the environment, but I think really where I've learned the most of it is just been, you know, be, being a part of masterminds and surrounding myself with other successful entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, and yeah, I, I just invest a lot in personal growth over, over the years. Does your dad ever call you up and say, what the hell are you doing? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Is there any, no, that? I mean, he's a little bit older at this point. So he's 69 and I'm 29. And, you know, I think he stays relevant through me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he's got wisdom on, on his end, you know, and like those, uh, those things that, you know, never change. Um, but more or less like, you know, what's happening in, in the now, like I'm much more a part of that than he is. Does he read the financials and call you over like little line items? Is he like, "Hey, why is Verizon?" No, no, because we're all we're all big picture thinkers, you know. Okay, okay, uh, okay. So he's okay. he's not in, in the weeds like that. Okay, that's cool though that you guys and your relationship is still solid with your dad and your brother. Yeah, exactly. I talk to I talk to my dad pretty much every day. So, I mean, that's really you know all joking aside, and that's I mean that's quite an accomplishment to have the business for what seven eight years. Yeah. You and your dad still have a great relationship. Your brother's working with you and, and you said lives with you, I think. Yeah. Um, the, that, that is not, that's not easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's gotta be days where you just want to punch each other. Right. I mean, there has yeah, to be. Yeah. But it's, it's been like that ever since we've been like three years old, you know? <laughs> so something just never changed, but I don't know. It's funny how like sometimes people like, you know, will think my brother and I are arguing. It's like, no, this is just how we always talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> you're you in know? the conference, you're in the conference room, you're in like a conference meeting and you guys are just going at it and everybody else is just kind of sinking down in their chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What, what's the exactly. status with your, what's the status with your, your social life? Are you good, girlfriend married? Uh, what, no, what's your I'm deal? single, single, okay. but uh, yeah, my, you know, my whole like philosophy in life is like work hard, play hard. Okay. Um, so, so you, uh, have, so you have a different partner every weekend. That's what you're saying. It's okay. You can, <laughs> you can admit it. <laughs> well, there's uh, I definitely uh, like to hang out with some attractive ladies. There's no doubt about that, but <laughs> You know, it's like you got to bring them along for fun things. So, like, one, I'm a big skydiver. Same thing with oh, my brother. Yeah. What? Yeah. So, That's my brother. Okay. 
right. Tell me about yeah. it. Yeah. My brother's got over 500 jumps. I have 126. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's uh, so right, you get to hang around NASCAR drivers. And by the way, is that sold? Did your dad sell that off? Yeah, team? we did that in 2001 and 2002. And, you know, uh, the way to make a small fortune in, in racing is to start with a large one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So it wasn't making money. Okay. But it was fun. And now the skydiving. Yeah. So that's a hobby for you. Okay. Yeah. Do, you meet, do you meet chicks doing that or no? No, I mean, I'm generally not into the chicks that skydive, um, but <laughs> it's fun to bring girls that don't skydive to take them skydiving. Ooh, there you go. It's a great first date, you know, like there's not yes. many right. things that will excite your emotions to that level in a positive manner, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, that would work good. Yeah, that's a good pickup line. You're like, Hey, look, I'm 29. I'm a CEO and founder of a company. I've uh, been doing this shit since I got out of college. And oh, by the way, I, I skydive as well. Would you like to come with me? I mean, how can how can they say no? I mean, come on, plus yeah. you're a good looking guy. I mean, you know, I mean, it's automatic. <laughs> well, and what you know, what's nice about it is it's like incorporated into my like everyday, you know, or not every day, but like I do that for fun on the weekend. So it's like, hey, I'm going skydiving. You want to come with me? You cool. know. <laughs> so cool, but nobody, uh, no, no, uh, no, like I love you relationships. Nothing serious yet, huh? I've had serious girlfriends, but at the moment, no, I don't have anything right now. Okay. So, all right, all right, all right, ladies, if you're, if, you're, if you're if you're listening, you might want to get in get in before the exit uh, of Vilfire, <laughs> because you know then you're then you're in before the big payday. <laughs> yeah. So an, an, another thing that I like to do for fun, like a big part of my social life, is actually uh, like exotic car events. So okay. Okay. I, I drive supercars and do a lot of stuff with that. Um, do you own some? Yeah, I have, I have a McLaren 600 LT. So I got that a couple of years, I think three years ago now. What's the, value, um, what's the, what's the value of that? That car was 325 K. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, do they even have insurance for cars that cost that much? I mean, what is the insurance monthly on something like that? Yeah. That's so I was 26 when I got it and I, you know, I didn't know what it was going to cost to insurance. So like, I was like, fingers crossed. Um, and it was only like 700 bucks a month. So it's like, oh, it's really? not too bad. Yeah. Oh, oh, I just assumed it'd be much more. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. I think it actually might've been a little bit less, maybe like 600 bucks. And I actually, for some reason went up when I moved to Arizona, but um, 25,000, where's that thing parked in like a vault? <laughs> my garage. <laughs> <laughs> you drive it on the weekends. Like you bust it out on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. There's great roads to go drive out here in Arizona. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, I don't think look at supercars the right way. Like personally, I love cars. And if I was the only person on planet earth, I would drive them. Like I just have a pure passion for them, but like supercars are also like a, a member to a or like a membership to a country club. Like you get access to very unique individuals, especially when you go and participate in the community, when you go to events, like everyone that shows up with, you know, several hundred thousand dollar cars like they're de generally of a certain caliber and then you know you ultimately get to meet like really interesting people that you wouldn't otherwise have met um, without kind of that common denominator of, of supercars who's the well without naming a name and just talking about the person like who's the most eccentric odd billionaire that you've hung out with and you're just like wow that guy's not from this planet because i know you've so had, you had to have met some <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely <laughs> um so in San Diego, I was a part of this uh, car club called Fast Lane Drive. And I think there's like three or four billionaires in that. Um, and then I've I've been working on building the, the Arizona chapter with a few other guys now that I'm oh, not cool. here. So, That's cool. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like a social networking club. And the common thread is everyone has supercars. And we go do cool events together. So 
And does then everybody yeah. does everybody lie, by the way? Does everybody does everybody lie about how much they're worth and how big they are and how famous they are? Does everybody embellish it like just a little? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Like, cause one of the things that I find interesting about being in communities like that is generally people are pretty happy for each other's successes. Um oh, okay. Like, it's not, it's not like, I mean, there's definitely like people that have more than others. Right. But there's right. It, people aren't like generally like talking down to people. Um, and yeah, it's, it's generally a pretty positive environment and everyone's always encouraging each other to do better. Mm. Um, so I, I really haven't had too many like negative experiences in that uh, kind of crowd of people, but occasionally, you know, I mean, there are like, it's people are human. So yeah. you come well, across you them. Yeah. But I would I mean, say that that's been, in my experience, more of the minority rather than, uh, you know, you see it that often. How about that? Interesting. Okay. All right. Very, you got to tell me more of those stories, more than like hanging out on a yacht <laughs> with billionaires. We'll talk about that over beer someday when I'm down in Arizona. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> Bill, by the way, for the listeners, buildfire.com, buildfire.com. Is that where anybody should go that's interested in, in or that needs an app? Is that, is that, yeah. Okay. Exactly. If you have an app idea, um, you know, you can go on there and you can sign up for a free trial and start building it on your own, or you can get in touch with one of our app consultants and we can figure out, you know, how we can best bring your idea to reality. Okay. Now let's get into this new thing you're doing. This, this, yeah. this laundry. So, so I'm, I'm hunting you down. I'm studying you this morning, getting ready for the podcast interview. You know, I'm trying to like, okay, well, I think I got the right LinkedIn profile up, but I don't, I don't, it's not, I don't see laundry sauce on here. What's going on? Yeah. Here? Do I got the right guy? And I'm looking around. <laughs> anyway, I do get to the laundry sauce website. I get to the website, by the way, for the listeners, it's laundrysauce.com. Um, and then I see it and I'm like, okay, this has a very cool feel. My immediate reaction was uh, the dollar shave club kind of mentality yeah. and pitch from a marketing perspective. That's what it reminded me of. Um and uh, I liked it. I was immediately attracted to it. I thought, okay, somehow they've figured out how to, how to make laundry detergent kind of cool, which I didn't even know you could do. <laughs> but anyway, but now I'm, but I'm looking back at your profile and I'm like, what the hell? How, what is he going to He's going to be a CPG guy now? What, what, what's going on here? So yeah. let me, give me the story, Ian. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, you know, part of, uh, you know, being involved in all these communities, you know, from build fire, like kind of getting me access to those. Um, I've always like been interested in, in e-commerce, like ever since I was in college, I had this whole fascination of people going to like go into your website and paying you money without ever talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so like, e-commerce has always been really interesting to me. Like, you know, I sold stuff on eBay when I was a kid. So, um, and I've had a lot of friends that have been like very successful in e-commerce. So I kind of knew like what types of e-commerce businesses uh, can grow really fast, uh, like where you get scalability, um, kind of the product categories that you want to be in. And one, um, I was flying out to our lake house with my brother and uh, on the airplane and I got targeted for this ad called Speed Sauce. And, uh, I was like, Hmm, I wonder if anyone's ever turned laundry sauce into a brand. Cause I think that'd be really funny. Cause laundry sauce, like that term got coined from like a meme, uh, like maybe six years ago or something. And it went viral. So my brother and I had called laundry detergent laundry sauce and oh, I, I saw, see you. Okay. yeah. All right. All right. So then the domain was available for sale and, you know, for 650 bucks. So I just bought it right then and there. So I'm like, yes. this is brilliant. And, you know, <laughs> I start to think about like, 
some of the biggest constraints you typically run into like is an e-commerce store. Like if you're a retailer, like maintaining thousands of SKUs is very difficult from an inventory perspective, like supply chain perspective, also even just the web development perspective. So if you can have like just one or two products, like that's about as simple as it can get. And then I also wanted the ability to have, you know, SaaS is interesting because of the whole recurring nature of it, right? So people pay you like a long-term annuity. So I wanted a product that, um, you know, people would uh, consume. So like I said, when I sold golf balls on eBay, like that's cool. Like people are always running out of golf balls because you lose them. Like they're consumable. Yes. And, um, you know, fundamentally laundry detergent goes down the drain every time you use it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a non-discretionary consumer good. Like you're not going to see like one of these days, I'm just going to stop buying laundry detergent. Like you need it. Like every single part, like whether you, whether or not you're doing your laundry, like you still need that product in your life. Yep. Um, so I just found that like really fascinating. And then it kind of just checked all the boxes that I kind of had in mind for, you know, what would make like a really simple e-commerce business. And, you know, initially I thought the idea would be way, way, way easier to execute too. And turns out uh, there's a lot of really complex chemistry behind it. Uh, Cause I thought you could just go on Alibaba and just go buy this stuff <laughs> and uh, it'd be super easy. Um, turns out like the stuff that you can buy in Alibaba doesn't actually clean your clothes. Uh, Cause fortunately we do have a technical advisor uh, that worked at Unilever for like 10 years in the laundry division. And he's got like a PhD in analytical chemistry so, you know, he's been our guidance along the way to actually make sure that we, you know, develop products that work and they're functional and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, we were doing like performance monitoring, um, you know, taking, you know, leading competitor products and, you know, what these, you know, detergents in China could do. And it just, it, it couldn't it was even a little, little, yeah, a little harder. Okay. Yeah. Did you, did you, um, you and your dad and your brother um, invested in this? How was it funded? Yeah. So actually it was me, my, uh, my brother, and then my, my other business partner, Rob, like we, we funded it um, initially for like, I don't know, maybe the first 150 K or so. Cause I, I remember when I told my dad about the idea, he thought it was so dumb and he's like, I will never give you a dollar to pursue this idea. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> um, and then you know, we eventually like, I mean, the idea also did evolve considerably, you know, throughout the, you know, kind of evolution in the months went on. Um, but we, uh, we ended up, you know, putting together a pretty solid brand identity, you know, website design, product design. And then, uh, we did some like initial videos, um, you know, kind of ads for the, for the product and, um, the videos are great. Videos are great, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. So I think that those videos like really brought the kind of life to the brand and got people to buy into it. And then, um, I mean, for this business, like I've had like, you know, what's interesting is like, I'll tell someone about the idea. And then like the next question is like, can I invest? <laughs> <laughs> are you, you taking know? money? Are you, uh, are you looking for? Yeah. No, no. It was, <laughs> I've already raised plenty of money for it. It's very well capitalized. We have a nice war chest of cash to, to take this to market with. Oh, did you, did you go, have you done this like a series A or just seed money or angel? What do you mean? Yeah. I mean, we did like an initial seed to prove that we could sell it. And then it just started, you know, selling like bonkers and like, there's tremendous scalability for this. So, you know, when you think about, um, you know, a typical business, like take your business. So in order for you to make more sales, you need more recruiters. You got to go mm -hmm. find more people. Um, you know, you have to have a sales team. So yes. like there's all these like constraints that are in place. Whereas this e-commerce business, like there's really, you don't have those fundamental constraints. So, 
um, like I view them as like, I, I like to think of them as spreadsheet businesses. So when you have like your cost per acquisition nailed down and it's like predictable at scale, you just essentially change a, like a number that you're spending in, um, you know, Facebook or Google. Like we went, uh, you know, like if you're spending $10,000 a day and you can crank it to like $50,000 a day and spend, um, you know, you basically have these infinitely scalable digital salespeople, like AKA your ads that go like interrupt people's day to say, Hey, come buy my shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you can just feed this ATM machine like as fast as possible. And like you get tremendous amount of scalability there. And then also um, like over the years, like there's been a lot of infrastructure that's been put in place for e-commerce. So like when we have an order that comes through, it, like it's almost like an API that like our site just goes off and hits our 3PL, our fulfillment center. And like they put our box in another box and send it off. Like I fundamentally don't have to deal with any of it. So if we go from, yeah, like a hundred orders a day to a thousand orders a day to 5,000 orders a day, like nothing changes on my end. Like that's their responsibility to go manage like the $15 an hour warehouse workers and like make sure our box goes in another box and gets sent off to the shipping companies. Where uh, are you manufacturing the, the, the sauce? Where is that it, being it, made? It's, it's all made in North America, but I'm not going to get into the details of where it's made. <laughs> uh, okay. But uh, so it's made, it's made yeah. in the U S yeah, yeah. Canada. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So my, my question was, if you go from 1000 to 50,000 in the orders, do you have the supply chain for it? Is there a lead time or yeah. do you have a giant? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you. that's one of the, uh, so that's that's another big constraint that you have with like e-commerce companies so um like if you can if you can sell it um you know what does your supply chain look like and like when you do a generic like i eventually i essentially see like laundry detergent as a generic commodity right okay. so okay. when within commodities there's already like a tremendous amount of scale that already exists right so you can you're just basically like tapping into existing manufacturing infrastructure rather than like having to build a really like unique product. Cause also part of my idea was like, I didn't want to have to have like a tremendous like R and D process going into building a product like this. Um, like when you think about like a Bluetooth speaker or something like one, it's a super crowded market. Um, but like, it's a hard product to make. Um, and you know, it might be hard to scale that up to, you know, thousands to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of units where, you know, laundry detergent, you know, you're taking, you know, essentially bulk chemicals and, you know, putting it through a machine and then it puts okay. it in pots. Uh, okay. So that, all right. So I'm just, I want to take a pause, right? I'm going to take a breath right here. So there's a manufacturer somewhere you're, that, that your, your vendor is already making shit tons of laundry yeah. detergent and you call them up and you're like, I need a hundred thousand more. And they're just, okay. They're pushing some buttons. Yeah. They're, send, they're sending your product through, they're injecting it with your scent or yeah. whatever that you put into it yeah. and sticking it out the door. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that's really how we made our product unique. Like our secret sauce is like the fragrance and like the whole brand experience that we've created. Okay. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, we also have like a really strong performing formula and there's so many people that I don't think actually buy like laundry detergent that cleans. Like when I, when I was looking in, um, <laughs> when I was looking into this whole like market and like seeing like, you know, what detergents clean better than others. Like I looked at what my mom had in her cabinet uh, when I was home and I'm like, I looked at like her stuff, like didn't have any enzymes in it. Like it doesn't actually like clean your clothes. <laughs> and then we get all these like reviews from people saying like, I've never had anything that's cleaned, you know, as well as our stuff or is laundry sauce. And like, it's just pretty interesting to get that feedback, you know, knowing that we put together like a really, really like strong product. What about the target uh, towards men? And are you going to yeah. stick with that? Are you going to, are you going to hold strong to that? Are you going to ease into targeting women more? I mean, what, yeah. what's your, what's your strategy? 
So it's really cool when you advertise on Facebook is the amount of demographic information that you get access to. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, in B2B, you're like, well, who's my core customer? And like, you, you know, your sample sizes are still like relatively small, you know, versus, you know, like a CPG. I mean, you're dealing with tens of thousands of purchases, you know, hundreds of thousands of website visitors, you know, you just have like much more data at play. And, you know, initially we had geared it much more as like a, a men's brand and turns out half of our traffic's female. And, um, you know, I, I, when you read some of the reviews on our site, you know, you hear, you know, moms that want to buy it for all the boys in the house or something like that. But like, there's actually women that really like our fragrances. So we are expanding uh, into that as well. So we actually have a, a woman's fragrance that we're working on called Egyptian Rose. Uh, and it's going to come in like a rose gold box, uh, like actually like rose gold foils, you know, the packaging, we definitely go over the top with, cause I think that creates like a great product experience. So like, we'll have our Australian sandalwood, which is, you know, a bit more male oriented. And then our Siberian pine, which is our white box. That's a bit more unisex. And then we'll have our Egyptian rose, which will be a bit more feminine oriented. Um, uh, I like it yeah. now. Right now you can only buy on your website. Cause I couldn't find it on Amazon. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, maybe eventually we get to the marketplaces, but right now, like there's a lot of value in having first party data um, because basically when you're selling on Amazon, you really don't have like any access to the, you know, the customer data. And then when people see your ads, like they might immediately go to Amazon and then, you know, you're missing out on all that, like tracking. And when you're scaling, you want to have as much data as possible. So it's like, it's a conscious decision not to um, go onto those platforms. And then also, you know, another common constraint you hear in e-commerce people is, you know, like they, they get so tied to Amazon that, um, you know, their entire business and existence is just completely dependent on what Amazon, you know, does. So, mm-hmm. you know, if Amazon wants to shut you off, I mean, mm-hmm. you can be out of business pretty quickly. <laughs> what about, what about wholesaling into uh, retailers? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm, we're interested in it. Um, it, it would have to be the right retailers cause we're like a premium brand. So like, I'd rather be in like, you know, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, like, I don't want to necessarily be at Walmart, you know? Okay. Okay. And you don't put a, a Rolls Royce dealership right next to like a, you know, Chevy dealership. Well, it's good <laughs> to not let Amazon and Walmart control your entire brand anyway. Right. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> that happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, okay. Very good. Can you tell us what you're doing in revenue so far? You want to share it? Uh, it's a lot. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, laundry sauce doing more than build fire? In revenue? Uh, it will be in a couple months. Yeah. Like on a monthly really? basis. Yeah. Really? Really? So how, here, I'll, how, the, I'll, how the hell are you? Are you, are you CEO of both companies? Yeah. Dude, what, how do you even have time to go skydiving? I don't know. What, what are you? Superman? Well, what are you? <laughs> you know all about it. You got to build the right team. Uh, and what's kind of where I've gone with laundry sauce is instead of hiring employees, I've hired agencies. So, you know, an okay. agency is fundamentally going to make, you know, 20 to 30% margins on their labor, but like, they're the ones, you know, responsible for kind of like orchestrating that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. yeah, I mean, you're getting like world-class talent. So what's nice about having a very simple product, it's, it's not hard to get a marketing team up to speed. Right. And, you know, so I have like an agency that does, you know, just our web development, an agency that does our videos, an agency that does our media buying, an agency that does our email marketing. So, you know, kind of outsource all the core functions of the business to agencies rather than employees. So um, with agencies, you're typically delegating an outcome um, and they know they have to deliver on that and agencies are fairly replaceable. Um, So that's Mm. where I think we've gotten... uh, 
you know, I, I think a bit of scale and, uh, you know, made it easy for us. But, you know, one of the things that I want to kind of come back to is like, well, how on earth can this business grow so fast? Um, and I'll give you just a couple examples. Um, I think, I don't think there's any other business vehicle that exists to go from like zero to a hundred million, um, than D to C e-commerce, like in a very short period of time without a tremendous amount of capital. So like, you know, there's, there's, there's SaaS businesses that have done that, but typically they've raised a ridiculous amount of money to make it happen. So like, if you look at Manscaped, they went from 3 million to 300 million in revenue in three years, and they're about to IPO for a billion dollars. Um, and they raised about 28 million in funding. Um, you know, there's, uh, like brands like native deodorant, you know, they, uh, they went from like zero to 30 million, I think in two years and sold to Procter and Gamble for like a hundred million. Um, you know, dollar shave club, they exited for over a billion dollars. Um, so, you know, kind of the D to C play is like, how do you take, you know, some generic boring thing and make it exciting, right? Like Dr. Squatch, they did it for bar soap, um, you know, dollar shave club and, uh, you know, Harry's, they did it for, you know, razors. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to look at some of these companies, like for example, Manscaped, I fundamentally think, you know, laundry detergent is a better, bigger market than ball razors, you know, yeah. and, and they've turned it into a, you know, several hundred million dollar year business, like very quickly. And, but that kind of comes back to these like principles of, you know, when you have your unit economics, right, you can just basically feed these ATM machines. Like, you know, you're basically taking like the most powerful AIs in the world, like Google and Facebook that are have been built entirely for, you know, e-commerce purposes. And what's cool is, um, you know, when you're using a platform like Shopify, like these AIs have access to all your sales data. So like you're feeding it good creative and then their AIs are figuring out like, who do I go target? Uh, that's like most likely to buy your product. And then they have like all the data in your, you know, e-commerce system to, you know, um, to improve. And, you know, when you're doing like, you know, tens of thousands of transactions, like you have a lot more like data points to optimize from, you know, rather than like B2B where you have, you know, 200 leads might be a lot for some businesses, you know, like if you're an, like if you sell it to enterprise customers, it might be like 15 leads a month or something. So I, I really like the whole notion of like just the, um, the amount of data you get in, in, um, in B2C. Okay. Let me, let me come back to my question though. How are you doing? How are you balancing your life? I want to make sure yeah, I know how, how are you balancing between the two and is that your plan to run both? Uh, yeah, for the time being. So, you know, we'll see how long I can do that for, <laughs> um, you know, but so far I'm, I'm, I've been making it happen. And, and generally what, the is way I dad, do it. Did you, did your dad, have you gone over to your dad and you were like, dad, what's up? I told you, I told you. Uh, did you have that <laughs> yeah. little conversation? <laughs> yeah. When we had the launch party, I called him out on that because <laughs> I had a big <laughs> launch party at my house and, you know, we were telling everyone kind of the whole evolution of the brand. And I made sure to, to bring that and, point up. And he wasn't an investor, right? I, you know, he, then he invested like oh, after, okay. after we had put up a decent amount of money, but. Yeah, um, and then you're like, dad, dad, these units, these units per unit. Now the cost is X, Y, Z. You could have yeah. bought in way earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, kind of how I balance this all, like, you know, Monday through Friday, uh, you know, I work a lot and then, you know, I, I take the weekends off. Okay. Um, I generally, and I've kind of maintained that for, you know, many, many years. Like I'm not like opposed to doing a little bit of work on the, on the weekends, but generally it's, um, you know, kind of an exception. So you're driving, you're uh, driving your cars, you're skydiving. What else? What are, what are your other hobbies? Yeah. So big into, you know, basically board sports and motorsports, like those are my things. And then also skydiving. So like snowboarding, surfing, you know, wakeboarding, 
wake surfing. Um, so I've just grown up doing board sports my whole life and like, I love it. Uh, I love adventure and like doing just fun stuff. And, uh, you know, skydiving is definitely the most extreme of those realities in my opinion, but, uh, What's yeah. the, what's the long-term plan for Ian? Are, do, do you just love building companies? Are you going to keep building them and selling them and get exiting and then looking for the next one? Like, what do you see yourself doing long-term? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I do like, I really love building things like taking an idea and turn it into reality. I can um, see that. Yeah, I can see that. That's where your yeah. passion is. I mean, I, I know you're a numbers guy. It's obvious you're a numbers guy and you're, you're a money guy, but I feel a lot of passion around the building something from scratch. I feel that on you. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question will be like, do I do it again? You know, cause like after I'd started build fire, I was like, okay, if I'm ever doing another business, I'm going to buy one and then, you know, make it better. Cause you know, generally entrepreneurs have to do all the hard work <laughs> in the beginning right. to like prove it. Uh, but then, you know, sure enough, we end up building another one. So who knows uh, if I want to build another one or, you know, buy something that I think is an interesting product and then, you know, figure out how to apply capital and like increase the enterprise value very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause that's kind of the whole private equity play is you buy like underpriced assets, you know, you inject capital into it and, you know, arbitrage the enterprise value relatively quickly. Let me ask you this. I know we're getting closer to the back end of this thing. Going to run out of time. You're um, somewhat careful on your social media, your personal social media. I don't, you don't, you don't step out there a lot and say you're, 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 you're what I'd call conservative on your social media. Is that by design? Um, I, I, well, I think I like to share things that I like, which are, you know, kind of like I mentioned off motorsports, board sports and skydiving. Okay. Um, you know, I think where I post more of the, the things that, um, you know, I wouldn't put up his post is more on my story. <laughs> you know, if we're going out to a nightclub or something like that, yeah, like that'll go on my story. That wouldn't go on, on, on my posts. Um, I see. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's definitely an aspect of, you know, want to go have fun and a good time, but you know, it's, it's a balance because there's also, you know, people that look up to you and, you know, you got to mm. protect your public reputation and um, yeah, I, I, I try and be thoughtful about it. You're spending a lot of money with Facebook on ads. Facebook has been has been a huge part of building laundry sauce, right? Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Um, let me ask you something about uh, the cancel culture from social media platforms. Yeah. Where, what if what if Ian came out on on Facebook and said, I don't know, whatever, something something yeah. wild, right? Like that pissed them off, didn't fit their narrative. What if you did that? What if the brand came out and said something and they just canceled? Yeah. They just they just took your page down. How would you, yeah. What are, what are well, your thoughts on that? <laughs> so here, the, the biggest sin in humanity is hypocrisy, right? right. Yes. And that's the only time you're ever going to get crucified. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. Like when you look at people that can't necessarily, you know, get canceled, like take a Joe Rogan, for example, mm-hmm. or like take a Dan Bilzerian, like mm-hmm. Dan Bilzerian is like, you know, very misogynistic and like, you know, posts the half naked women. Like that's what he's built his whole brand on, but like, that's authentic to who he is, mm-hmm. you know, versus if you had like a politician going and doing something like that, oh. like that's incongruent with like the message that he's put out. So like, that's kind of that, like uh, hypocrisy is like the only sin that is against. So if you're like true to your values and you're just upfront about it, um, like I want to be a brand that can't be canceled because we're just like authentic with who we are, you know? Okay. Very good. Yeah. 
Yeah, very good answer. You're right, by the way. Rogan says a bunch of stuff that normal people would be canceled for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we all like, he, but he's like, very, like, he's like, I like to smoke weed, I like to do psychedelics, and I'm a cage fight commentator. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, versus like if you had like some politician like doing mushrooms or something like that, like, yeah, you know, there'd be outrage, you know, or, you know, so as long as you're just true to who you are, it's hard That's to get good. canceled. That's good, Ian. That's really good stuff. Okay, two last questions here. Um, if you could tell an aspiring entrepreneur anything right now with just a couple of little short tips, and I know you could yeah. write a book, you could write a book on it at this point, probably. But you know, they're thinking about starting something, but they haven't. What would you tell them right now? Well, you just got to do it. <laughs> you know, you got to put just one foot in front of the other. Uh, there's no like perfect time in life to to make it happen, but. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it takes time. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like I like to think about it, um, in terms of, uh, you know, growing a plant, right? Like you got to plant that seed and unfortunately it takes time to grow. You can keep watering it and watering it and watering it. And like the more you water, it doesn't mean it's going to grow faster. Like there's a certain time horizon to take, you know, ideas from, uh, you know, that little seed to reality. I mean, it was two years before, um, like I first came up with the idea to when we actually started selling laundry sauce, um, as much go. as I would have liked to ex expedite that and truncate that process, like it, it kind of went as fast as we could make it. So, mm, good you point. know, you gotta, you gotta start somewhere, but I mean, just sticking with maybe the plant analogy, um, yeah, it's good. uh, like that seed, whatever seed you're planting, like you are very much like a byproduct of your environment. So one of the things that has always accelerated my like pace of learning and success has been being around people that are far more successful than I am. And you learn their habits, you learn what they talk about, you learn their strategies and that will certainly speed up the, um, you know, the speed in which you're able to, to make something happen. So think of like your environment as the soil that your seed is growing in. Good stuff. That is good stuff. Last question. If you had to define your core purpose in life, put it into a sentence, what would it sound like? So I think about, um, well, it's, it's like you have your, your personal life and like, I just, I like, I want to have fun and have a good time and live a fulfilling life. Right. Um, so like, I think there's, there's two aspects There's the personal side. And then there's like, what impact are you going to leave on society? And you can leave a variety of, of, uh, impacts, you know, with what you do with your brand. So, you know, with Buildfire, you know, we've, um, we've helped many businesses, uh, you know, with our technology and we've had like some really, really like inspiring stories, like children's national hospital, like their celiac center, they built an app on our system, you know, tens of cool. thousands of downloads cool. and it's helping like children that have like diseases. So, um, the, the, the business that you're part of can make a big impact as well. Uh, but then, you know, I, I think of it like this, there's like societal impact and then there's like environmental impact. So one, the one thing that is guaranteed to transcend your time on earth is the impact you leave on the environment. Mm. You know, so one of the charities that I've always been interested in is Four Ocean. Like they're cleaning up the Great Pacific, you know, garbage patch, like all this plastic floating yes, around. I've seen yeah, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, for example, with laundry sauce, like I want to partner with them. So like, you know, as you know, we sell more, like we're able to donate more to them. Cause I think that's like a passion, a cause that I'm passionate about because I'm a surfer and I want clean oceans and stuff, but yes, 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 yes. yeah, from the environmental impact, you know, like societal changes, those, you know, kind of ebb and flow, you know, over the centuries, but, you know, guaranteed your environmental impact will last a long time. <laughs> Ian Blair, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me.